Amen. Well, listen, as we continue in worship, why don't you stay standing for the reading of God's word? We're going to be coming out of 2 Samuel today, uh, chapter 15, and just so awesome to have a service in its entirety that's committed to Christ being magnified, and it's no different as we read God's word today. And so we're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 37 of 2 Samuel chapter 15. This is the word of the Lord for today. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And so then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us free, flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house and the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by and all the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai the Gittite answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will be your servant. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. 
And then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abithiar the, Abithiar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. And so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. What a Sunday, huh, church? So good to be in the house of the Lord today. Welcome. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. And uh, love you guys, by the way. You know that, right? I love you guys. Sweet. It's all right. I love with no expectation of love in return, just like Jesus. I'm just kidding. I love you guys. Uh, grab your Bible. 2 Samuel 15 is where we're going to be. 2 Samuel 15. And uh, while you're turning there, I wanted to make an announcement, just um, a heads up. There was a sweet connection to watching the little ones get baptized today, right? And it's because our children's ministry has such a deep intentionality with discipleship. And so let me just give you the scenario right now. Because of the deep intentionality with discipleship that the uh, children's ministry has, uh, we don't believe that children's ministry is childcare. Okay, we're not watching your kids, we're helping them grow to follow Jesus. And as a result, the church is growing, as you could imagine. And here, here's the thing, we have more room in our classrooms for kids, but not enough volunteers to take care of those kids. And so because of these ratios that we have, we're end up ending up having to move kids out here into the worship center instead of being able to offer them a place where they can get age-appropriate, gospel-centered material with students of their own age. So here's what you can do to help. Um, if you're not serving in kidsmen in some way, shape, or form, some of you are like, I can't teach, I can't, the kids, ah, like, maybe there's a different role for me. You can do sign-up, you can do security. There is a whole bunch of different roles that go into children's ministry. But if you're not serving in children's ministry in some capacity, could I encourage you to consider that? Even now, if that just strikes you as something that you can just jump in and do, 
it, for me as a pastor, watching someone, um, because we don't have enough volunteers, get pushed away from kidsmen and not be able to attend on a Sunday, is like, oh. And the reason for that is good, though. It's not like, oh, just take another person in. It's no, we want to keep these quantities the way they are so that the quality of the discipleship can be there. But how much more could we be doing to engage in that? Because it's not a capacity level in the classrooms, as you might think. It's a volunteer capacity issue. So would you write that down for me? Would you consider praying about that? If you go to the homepage of the Doxa Church uh, app, it's right there. Serve Doxa Kids. And there is a role for you even if you're not a kid person, okay? That would be a huge blessing, right? We care about the kids, yes? Let's think about that, okay? That would be a blessing. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Title of the message this morning. The dark day of ascent. It's interesting to preach a message where this is the title after we had this moment, right? This is like the heyday. This is the celebration, tears streaming down people's faces, my heart revving at a heart rate that's probably not healthy, but excited to see this take place. But here's what I would say. Most of the testimonies, as you will meet these people and understand where they've come from, is they came from a dark place, and God brought them to a new place, right? They came from a place where they were enslaved to sin, and now they have been forgiven of their sin and redeemed from their sin, and now because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within them by faith, empowered over their sin, but there was at one point a dark day. There was at one point an enslavement. There was at one point participating in the kingdom of darkness. And now, by the work of God in the gospel, through faith in the individual, a transformation that takes place. But it starts in a recognition that there was a dark day. There was a sinful time because we are sinful people. And so when I think of dark days, though, and I don't know what your testimony includes, and I'm sure there's other kinds of dark days, like just tough seasons of life. And some of you might be walking in that right now. And I don't know about what it is for you, but with me, what makes a dark time especially dark is when a bunch of things converge upon another until it just causes the floor to give out underneath you. You know what I'm saying? Like when you think about David's life, think about what has transpired. Personally, he is having to live through the consequences of his sin. Like how many of you, like, I just feel like, when I've committed a sin that then has these like, and for him, generational effects, I, I, I just want to go right then. Like, Lord, take me now. The heartache of having to see your sin play out in, in terms of its consequences is a devastating reality as is. Then you've got the domestic issues where he's seeing the sin he committed in his own sons. And as a father, that just got to break your heart. If you put yourself in David's shoes, even for a second, could you imagine it would be the opposite of watching two parents standing here by the baptismal, bawling their eyes out over that celebration. Imagine the opposite tears. And that's what he's having to walk through. And then you think about it from a political perspective, and you've got one of his sons who already killed another one of his sons looking to take over his kingdom that he's not even fully aware of what's going on, although he's kind of picking up whiffs of that, but his kingdom is crum and crumbling. And let me just say, David is 40 years into his being king at this point. Okay, how, how many of you are, are close to retirement? Is that like a thing in here? I mean, I know, you know, for the most part, we don't believe in retirement because you're just going to turn around and serve the Lord, right? But 
right? Somebody preach. Somebody preach. Um, but imagine you got to the end and your legacy, the worst part of your 40 years was what you were staring in the mirror in your 40. So you have your mess-ups when you're younger so that by the end you have this triumph at the end and that's why you get together and you celebrate and all this stuff takes place. Imagine the worst parts of your ministry, of your work, you know, employment is at the very end. That's when legacy is built. And the truth is, is that this is a struggle to endure and endure faithfully and, and even more to finish well. And all this is converging on David's life in the 40th year of his reign. He's roughly 70 years old at this point. You're like, come on, come on. Let's get back to the good news of baptism. Come on, this seems heavy. I don't want to think about this stuff. Let me, let me, share, let me share some good news. There, are, there is some good news that, that peeks through this chapter, but it's only this, and you need to listen carefully. David's dark day of ascent here, the good news is that it anticipates and illuminates Jesus' dark day of ascent. With this most significant distinction, David suffered as a consequence of the things he had done. Fast forward a thousand years, Jesus Christ will walk the same path he will ascend the same hill, and he will suffer, but not for the consequences of things he had done, but for the sins that you and I have committed. For this stunningly good news, to reconcile all who would trust in Jesus to God. That's the good news in this passage. And so if you see it, and God, I pray that you would give these people eyes to see, then for those of you who are saved, this is a day of thanksgiving to know what Jesus did for you. And for those who can't see, that God would open your eyes to see the one that you need is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who ascended a hill, suffered and died in your place for your sin to reconcile you to God in right relationship. So let's, let's get this big idea out there. David's suffering in exile as a result of his sin anticipates the later suffering of the son of David that is a result of our sin. Who would have thought such tremendous gospel truths would come out of 2 Samuel 15? David's suffering in exile as a result of his sin anticipates the later suffering of the son of David. He's the one we're looking for. He's the one our hope is in. He's the one that through his dark days, we can be forgiven. Specifically, his not only dark days of ascent to the Mount of Olives, but his dark afternoon at Golgotha where he suffered and died in our place for our sin. So how does chapter 15 break down? It breaks down like this. Chapter 15 is about Absalom ceasing what doesn't belong to him, namely the kingdom. And it's broken into two major divisions. The rebellion of Absalom and the exile of David. So we're gonna frame it with two major distinctions and there's some drop downs to make your outline uber confusing like normal, okay? I either sometimes I, I, I let up and I just do two big points, and then other times I get a little giddy and, and start dropping down outlines, and it's like three, and then A, and then I, and then A, and then one. It's, sorry. I would say it's like 
half that way today, but hopefully we can follow. Um, we're going to talk about the rebellion part as couched in deceit, and we're going to talk about the exile part as faith catalyzed in exile. You're going to see rebellion, and, and this is actually something we ought to pay attention to, Christians. Um, rebellion is not always overt. Oftentimes, rebellion is covert, and it's especially true in the Christian life. Why do you think that is? Because you know better, but you're still shady at heart. That's the truth. So your rebellion is much more covert because you know you shouldn't be doing the things that you're doing, and yet you're doing them, and in order to keep doing them, you put this facade on the outside. Does that make sense? Because I just preached some of y'all's stories. Okay? And then we're going to talk about the fact that because of Absalom's rebellion, how it pushes David out, but faith all of a sudden comes out. It re, is reborn in David. We see David acting like a man after God's own heart, even if it's in some small ways, and it's encouraging, so we're going to go there. Here's the first point, how we're going to describe this. Uh, rebellion couched in deceit, okay? Rebellion couched in deceit. I don't know if you knew this kid growing up, but I definitely knew this kid. I think we had a friend like this. His parents had no idea how shady he really was, but because he went to church on Sunday and he led student government, the parents were like, he's just the greatest. And you're like, he's smoking weed under the, you know, um, a stadium kind of thing, and he's, he's doing some shady stuff at church on the side, and he's the one that blew off his hand at Mexico and all these things, and, and, and they're like, no, not my Johnny. Yes, you're Johnny. They just don't see it. You know what I'm talking about? The pa- I'm just making that up, so I give enough things so you're not pointing back if you know me from my childhood going, I know who you're talking about. I just realized I had to, like, catch myself here because this person does exist in my head. And some of you know my past, and so, you know what I'm saying, though? Parents, that may be you right now, like, little Johnny's so great, and a little Johnny is steering a whole bunch of people away at church to something else, okay? And that's kind of what's going on with Absalom. He kind of has this vibe that everybody loves Absalom, right? And he's the kind of student government kid. He, he, he's, he knows how to fake it. He knows how to schmooze. And he does it in two ways. You're going to see it playing out in two different ways. He's like a politician campaigning for office. Like, this is how he rocks. Two different ways his rebellion lurks. One behind the persuasiveness of a public persona, okay? This is putting on a front. This is Sunday mornings, right? The kids are screaming in the back of the car. You're like, shut up, kids. And then you walk in the door. You're like, God bless. How are you? Can I pray for you right now? Right? Get the kids after church. Get in the car. God's good. I'll see you next Sunday, right? That kind of idea. The persuasiveness of a public persona. It's all about image, okay? If you want to be king, you got to look the part. I had friends on the UCLA soccer team that used to say, if you want to play good, you got to look good. The grammar's not there, but the idea was that hair needed to be done before the game got started, okay? You want to be king, you got to look like you're a king. So what does he do? He comes with his private jet, he lands, and then the Cadillac Escalade Brigade shows up, right? And he's got security guards all around him. Or in the first century, he had horses and chariots and 50 men. And he gets up early, 
because he wants to win the people over. All this is about stealing hearts in verse 6, right? And he's got a plan for this. He's got a way that he's going to go about stealing hearts. This man that is, remember that handsomeness and attractiveness head to toe. This is the kind of person that Israel was drawn to. This was a king like all the other nations. He was playing the part. He had it all down, and so he would go to the courtroom by the gates, and he would try to intercept people early along the way, and he had this perfect recipe to try to steal people after him. First of all, he would just fake like he cared at all, right? Hey, where are you from? Oh, tell me about it, you know, verse 2. And, and then he would affirm the case. It didn't matter what it was. This is the, yeah. There are lawyers like this. Who It doesn't matter what the case is. I love this. Um, one commentator said it like this, Absalom never met a plaintiff with whom he didn't agree. Tell me your story. Tell me your situation. See, your claims are good and right. Does it matter where it's coming from? No, it just all was supported. I can help you with that. So he feigns care, he affirms their case, and then he gives the, if only I were king clause speech. And, and you set up this situation where um, you kind of talk about dysfunction in a subtle way. Like, there's some dysfunction within David's group here. There's probably not going to be someone. It's like the DMV. You're going to take a number. It's never going to get called. Although, I think the DMV is doing better now at that. But, but at least that's its reputation, right? And so you're going to come in, and he's kind of like, it's sort of like that. And so, But you know what? If I were king, this whole thing would be better. If I were king... Well, then the answer would be me, literally in verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to, and in the Hebrew, the emphasis is on yours truly. He is the answer. Now, all of this is interesting, like, oh, David's not here to help you, and nobody else is here to help you, despite the fact that last chapter we literally saw David intervening for the woman of Tekoa and hearing her story. So it doesn't have to be true in order to sow a little seed of discord. Does that make sense? You wanna, by the way, this is exactly how a church split happens. Like to the T. Someone that people can go to to share their problems. They're seen as mature in the church and they have a problem with leadership. They have a problem with someone on the staff. They have a problem with something the church is doing and they go and this guy feigns the spirituality, hears the gossip and slander and whatever else comes in and then turns it in such a way where they're like, man, that's so, I'm so sorry for that and it's probably worse than you even see. And if only I were your pastor, Ah, oh, just so sad. And then all of a sudden, the stirring gets up in the people, and they're like, we should plant a church out of that, which, by the way, you never plant a church out of that scenario. And sadly, so often, that is a common situation. The whole thing is textbook. He, textbook. he then finishes off with a personal touch, and if this is not political, I don't know what is. They're bowing down to pay homage to him. He lifts them up. He's a man of the people. He's on their level. He refuses to make them bow down. This is like what politicians do when they put on a hard hat and they take a photo op with the labor union to show that he can understand what's going on with the people. This is quintessentially what's happening. And here's the thing. It works. It works. Verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, which, just to be clear... 
is not a term saying that he captured their affections. It's a term that means he duped their minds. It's the same language used, and I believe it's Genesis 31, when Jacob stole the heart of Laban. That wasn't stealing Laban's affections, if you're following the story in Genesis. That was duping Laban into a scenario where he was going to get away with some extra stuff. This is what's taking place. This flattery, this persona is a great way to deceive others, and he was milking this for four years on end, right? You just stir it just a little bit. You stir it just a little bit in the church. You do it subtly. You seem wonderful. And over four years, it starts to increase this following and this gathering. And so we see this taking place, and then we see another part of it. He like mixes the perfect amount of political persona, public-facing image with, I call it, uh, the pretense of piety, where you also have to look like you're Christian, which again, works well in politics. It's amazing how everyone becomes religious when it's close to election time. Isn't that true? Oh, we stand on these convictions. Well, now it's just so blatantly obvious that they can say what they want, and then that book, you know, that called the Bible seems to so differ at times with where these folks are. But you know where also this, this comes into play, this pretense of piety is when you want to date that girl. And you're like, I'm Christian. And the girl goes, so mom, dad, he said he was Christian. And then you're shocked later on to find out he's not Christian. Here's the thing. Sometimes guys want something. And so they're willing to tell you whatever they think you want to hear. I was with a newly married couple this week, and, uh, or with the husband, and he tells, tells this awesome story. He said, when I was about to date my now wife, she basically gave me this straightforward thing like, yeah, I hear you're Christian now, and I'm going to be watching it. And if you don't like continue to live Christian, you're gone, is what she said. I'm like, I love this girl. Come in, have her teach some seminars. That is how it ought to work. I hear you saying it. I want to see it. And if I don't, you gone. More of that, right? More of that. Yes, please. And so Absalom's kind of playing the same religious card. And what does he say? He wants to sacrifice, right? He wants to worship. He vowed that if he ever came back to Jerusalem, he would do this. And so he gets sent in peace. Here's what you need to know. This is the last time he ever, I believe, mentions God in the rest of his story. The last time Absalom ever mentions God. And even here, it's devious. Because, of course, when he gets there, what does he do? He sends out 200 men as kind of spies to work the people over, to stir them up in agreement with him, which gives us those echoes of earlier Old Testament realities, as 2 Samuel has been doing often, namely, it is echoes of Moses and Joshua who sent spies into the land as a preliminary to conquering the signs are there. He's going after the kingdom. Do you see it? A kingdom that isn't his. And he gives the impression with these men that he has widespread uh, support until he's ready to make his move. Absalom's rebellion is couched in deceit. Now, when David hears about what goes down, you start to see faith reborn in David, and it's encouraging to watch. And so here's the next movement of the text. Faith 
is catalyzed in exile. Okay, faith is catalyzed in exile. I, I recognize the fact that when we, none of us pray, God, please let affliction come into our lives, right? Because it hurts. But God does some of his best work in our affliction. God does some of his best work in exile. God does some of his best work because we're left leaning on, depending on, trusting in nothing other than him. When you are grabbing your stuff as fast as you can, packing the lightest suitcase you can possibly pack because you got to be able to not only carry it with you, but move pretty quickly to get out of there, and you don't know where you're sleeping for your next night's rest, that's when you call out to God in a different way, right? And so in exile, we're going to see David's faith take root again. David flees, obviously, we see this. A messenger comes in verse 13 and says, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And it's this kind of exodus, like an exodus from Egypt all over again, with a Pharaoh-like figure in Absalom, persecuting a kind of true Israel in David and his followers across water, and into the wilderness, which is where he will end up. Interesting, all the layers of tone in the Exodus in David's story. And in verses 13 to 17, it kind of gets set up, and David gets word of Absalom's success, and for the first time in a long time, he starts acting like the king in a way that he hadn't before. He chooses to flee. Why? Because it would bring down, verse 14, ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. That's more a decision a king makes who's faithful to the Lord. How does it flip? Remember with Uriah... To save himself, he was willing to sacrifice the many. But as the faithful king in this moment, he's willing to risk himself or sacrifice himself to preserve the many. This is a flip in the way that David is operating here. And so his servants quickly follow. They grab their stuff. They're willing to go wherever my lord, the king, decides. And the king goes out and the household and the 10 concubines keep the house, which if you know the story, it's not going to go well for the 10 concubines. That's rough. 10 concubines holding sway over the house. I don't know if they were packing heat. You would hope they were. I don't think they were. It doesn't go well. And it says this, and here's this language, the king went out and all the people after him. Again, that went out language has echoes of Exodus right there. But it's not only echoes of Exodus, it's a preview of an exile that's to come, namely the Babylonian exile. And that this is actually a pattern of going out into exile that's been taking place since Adam and Eve. And exiles that go east, Old Testament-wise, are exiles that are moving you away from the presence of God. So how do we see this? Well, Adam and Eve are exiled, and where are they exiled to? East. Israel's going to be driven from their kind of Edenic-like land in the exile to Babylon to the east. David is fleeing here, and if you look at a map, he's fleeing to the east. In fact, there's a whole psalm 
where David talks about fleeing from Absalom, and in that psalm, you see him crying out in Psalm chapter 3, oh God, how many are the foes that stand against me? This is the kind of, I love this too, because when you're in exile or when things just flip over in your life, when you're not pressed in some sort of affliction or trial, you will use ingenuity and you won't often take your request to the Lord, but when you're in affliction, you have no other option and it all hurts so bad, you just start saying things. And he's just calling out to the Lord. How many are my foes? It's not going well, but you see his faith sprouting in Psalm 3, verse 3, when he says, but you, O Lord, here's the turn. He's trying to like, Focus on what he knows to be true of God so that he can walk forward with a kind of confidence that you wouldn't have outside of the Lord himself. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. He kept my life going. Where did I lay down? I had no idea where I was laying down. Here's what I know. Wherever I lay down, the Lord is there to sustain me there. My back hurts today, it was my neck yesterday, but the Lord sustained me in both days and I'm breathing and alive and we're gonna continue to go forward because the Lord is my God in the good and the bad. Hard to teach a people like us who are so prone to comforts, right? And so we can welcome affliction because of the faith that it catalyzes in the midst of all of this. And so we, I wanna show you some ways that I think David's faith is catalyzed here that might be helpful for us as we walk through our own seasons of affliction, walk through our own seasons of exile. And so the first one is this, that faith rises on the wings of friends. You ever experienced this? You're in a really, really tough spot. I remember uh, trying to have the idea to plant a, the church. And it was like, you're gonna do it from scratch? You're going to go back and kind of parachute in? You don't have a core group? Well, I thought I had a core group. You don't have a core group? That's a problem. But it's the person when you have so much doubt and so much heaviness hanging over your soul that just goes, I'll go there with you. Like, we'll put, that was my brother, you know? Cool, cool story. My brother was an uh, All-American at UCLA. He was uh, probably going to be a top 10 draft pick in the MLS. He decided to forego that season to help me plant this church. That faith. You can hear it in me right now, can't you? The faith on the wings of a friend. He said, I'm doing that, and until this church gets off the ground, I won't be doing anything else. And now we went back, and yeah, it's cool, yeah. So there's, there's two things about it. We need, to, we need that friend, do you have that friend? And you need to be that friend, and I'm gonna kind of move it in a couple different ways, but I'll, I'll show it to you. So, um, the servants pass by, and all the Carathites and the Pelathites in verse 18, and 600 Gittites who had followed before the king, but then the king stops Ittai the Gittite, which is just a cool name to say, and easier than some of the other ones. And he's trying to figure out, like, why, why are you going with us? Don't go with us. Don't do this. You don't need to do this. You've been here since yesterday. I want you to have your freedom. I want you to be able to enjoy your family. You don't need to come out with us. And this guy doubles down so hard. <laughs> he says, as the Lord lives and as my king, the Lord lives. It's like double oath. I'm not going anywhere. You get thrown into the fire, I'm going into the fire. It goes well, we go well together. 
it goes bad, we go down together, whether by life or by death. I'm in your corner. That's a friend. And let me just remind you, as you're thinking about the kind of human friend that you maybe need to have in that area, who are you sharing with, let's not forget the fact that the greatest friend in human history is Jesus Christ. He is the true friend, and he has been a true friend to his people. He is the one. Talk about, itai means with me. It has this really close play on the words with me, with me. He's with him, right? Itai is with David. Jesus Christ is not just with us. He stood in our place. He took upon himself the wrath of God deserving our sins so that we could be set free. He didn't just die for us, he rose for us. He didn't just rise for us, he ascended to the right hand. As king, interceding for us, pleading the work of his death on our behalf, sending with the Father, the Spirit, to dwell in our hearts so that he can say in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptize them and teach them, and lo, I am finish it with you always. That's the friend Jesus is. How good is that? He is the friend par excellence. And you need a friend like that too. You need Jesus if you don't have Jesus. Some of you have Jesus and you're not relying on Jesus like that. Let me encourage you, he is the true friend to rely on above all else. And then find some Jesus-like friends that are relying on Jesus and praying for you and willing to stand in the gap with you. But then I will also say this, talking about being this friend, if you ever wanted to know what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like, it looks like Ittai, the Gittite. You tell me I'm a Christian, I say, where are you following Jesus to? In the good and the bad? Whether by life or by death? Listen to Paul. Paul in Philippians 1 says this, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. There's a difference. Some people make that distinction in our modern context is like, you know, fair weather fans of Jesus, and we really see faith when we see someone who goes, if he puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. Right? Just give me where Jesus is. That's all I care about. I want to go forward with Jesus. So if he tells you because you're a Christian now and your faith is wrapped up in him and he is Lord, if he tells you to get in the water of baptisms, you go to the water of baptisms because that's what a follower of Jesus does. If he tells you to pick up your cross and follow him, you pick up your cross and follow him, not in your own strength, but in the strength he supplies because that's where Jesus calls you to go because wherever he calls you to go is where he's going to go with you. And in that, you rejoice. And this looks different than the kind of average sort of, I'm a Christian. Do you follow Jesus when it's hard? How many people, when a church implodes, and it's terrible when that happens, just to have nothing to do with church anymore? How many, when a family unfolds, in a horrible way, divorce and all this stuff, nothing to do with Jesus anymore. And I get it, stuff is hard, and I'm not trying to minimize that at all. What I'm saying is, but Jesus Christ is worth enduring with. He endures with you far greater than you will ever feel like you have to endure in your circumstances with him. And so he has this friend, and of course the irony is so clear in the passage, his son rejects him, but this Gentile, Absalom rejects him, but this Gentile remains loyal to Yahweh's king, thus part of true Israel, if you will. The second thing we see, faith submits to what pleases God. 
So he comes across the water in verse 23. He's got more friends coming. Abiathar, Abiathar, I keep saying different words. They're not different people. I'm just saying them differently. Ask me why later. I have no idea. Zadok, Zadok, same people. The priests bring the ark. And here's the interesting thing. So the ark shows up again, verse 24, right? And and it kind of is like, I don't know what the priests are thinking. We don't see this. Do they think it's going to bring favor and protection? We don't know. But here's what David really quickly does. It's almost like 1 Samuel 4, for those of you who are here during 1 Samuel. Do you remember how they brought the ark of the covenant? And it was like um, rabbit foot religion, you know? God's in this box. And so like shake the box at the army and they're like, Okay, and uh, like, see, God's with us, Ugh! and and they lost the battle, and they lost the box, and it didn't go well, right? And it's not to say that the box isn't profoundly symbolic of the presence of the Lord, but David knew the difference between a good luck charm and the providence of Almighty God. Different, right? That you don't work God over by holding on to your prayer beads as if you're going to be heard a little bit more. Or that's why I wear that cross around my neck so I have favor in my day. All of that is rabbit foot religion and good luck charm and it is prominent and prevalent in our culture and David understands that stuff means nothing. I don't mean to be rude. It literally means nothing. What matters is the providence of God. And so he goes, you need to take the ark back where it belongs and here's how we're gonna do this moving forward. Knowing it's his own consequences from sin if, day, if it should please the Lord to bring me back to the city to see the ark, then praise be to him. And if he decides something else for me where I don't return to the city and don't see the ark, here's these words again, we've heard them before, let him do to me what seems good to him. That's how you ride out the whirlwind of the consequences of sin when it takes place in your life. I know I'm going to have to walk in some of this and my future is in his hands and I will not submit to lesser ways of trying to connect in some sort of a superstitious way with God. I'm gonna trust that almighty God cannot be contained even in the furniture made to symbolize his presence. You know that ultimately you fall not under the footstool of Yahweh but under the favor of almighty God. And this faith also motivates action. When you believe in God like this, you don't just resign to let go and let God and and, and now you're going to take a back seat. No, he engages, he sends the priests out, he puts them in posts as spies to get word from them on what's going on. And then he goes up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He, the rightful king, hikes up the Mount of Olives. A place that even in the last week of Jesus' life, he went three times. A route Jesus would cross and the same mount Jesus would make his way up facing a far greater rejection and a far greater darkness and also praying like David. Both in the first part of this in the verses 26 and 27, the idea of let him do what seems good to me, but also in verse 31, You find David praying, Jesus prays as well on the mount, specifically the words, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, do what seems good to you, O God. 
pardon my translation there. It's there, isn't it? David gets news about Ahithophel. This is like his number one biblical counselor. This is his right-hand man. This is the one that he used to take sweet counsel together. He writes about it. It's a horrifying, sad story of a friendship lost in Psalm 55 that they used to take counsel together. He says, but I, he says, but I call to God. This has not gone well for our friendship. He has joined the conspirators, and yet I call to God. And you get this faith that is encouraged by answered prayer. So he goes, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And what happens? God answers that prayer in the most interesting way by bringing forth Hushai the archite. That wouldn't have been the way I thought God would confuse the counsel of Ahithophel, and nonetheless, that is God's answer. And eventually in chapter 17, we're going to see that God, instead of turning the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, he's simply going to turn Absalom into a fool to reject the counsel. But this is God's answer to prayer. And let me just encourage you to say what a blessing it is to know that God answers our prayers in the darkest hours. And may it be that he has prayers to answer in your dark hour. So you want to see God show up, you got to pray. You got to seek the Lord. And when it's dark and when it's difficult, you can be resigned to tears and internal, but let there be prayers for God to answer in the dark days of your life. For David, it sprung his faith from ashes now into something again. His faith springs up in exile. And the truth is for us, faith can spring eternal for you if you can see that on the darkest day in human history, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, suffered and died on that dark afternoon at Golgotha, not for what he had done, but for what you had done and I had done, satisfying the wrath of God that, listen, all you might know now is his grace. That when you get into a circumstance, despite the consequences of your sin, you can say with confidence, whether this goes well or poorly from my perspective, here's what I know when I am in Christ, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let him do what seems good to him. This is the gospel intention with this passage. We're going to sing as we close a brief word about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Might I encourage you to turn your hearts and attention there as we continue.